Well, I want to tell you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You know, people used to say that before they would give testimony in a court of law. It's becoming less and less popular. It sounds so religious. But can you imagine how important it is when you give testimony in a court of law to have an authority higher than yourself as you do that? The truth and nothing but the truth. That's what we want to tell you because we love you. And if you don't care about truth, and if you don't tell the truth, you're not a loving person. Imagine if you came to me and said, I have cancer. And I said, I actually have a solution for that. And it's drinking sugar water. If you just drink a cup of sugar water every day, you'll be healed of this. You know, it tastes pretty good. It's... Um, not expensive, it, it's, it's a really easy solution to this. <laughs> well, if I told you that was the solution to cancer, you'd, you'd think either I had lost my mind or I was really stupid or really foolish or really cruel and deceptive. And I'm so grateful that God doesn't give us shallow solutions to our problems. He tells us the truth. And that's what we want to do this week. Remember, our goal is the same as the Apostle John, who says, Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the book of John, the gospel of John that we're looking at this week. But these are written, these things in his gospel are written in this book, but they're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I love that in that verse it puts the word the before Christ because some people think Christ is Jesus' last name, like he was born to Joseph and Mary Christ, and so he was Jesus Christ as if it's his surname. No, the Christ is a really important title for Jesus, by far the most common title used of him. It's the Greek equivalent, Christos is, of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is the anointed one, the one upon whom God's favor, primarily through the Holy Spirit, rests, who, who is enabled by that to fulfill God's promises that he told us would come to pass all the way in the Genesis 3 passage in the Garden of Eden that Sarah pointed us to Sunday night. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God gave a promise that he was already working a solution to this horrible tragedy of human rebellion against the Creator. And that solution was going to come through the seed of the woman, this promised Messiah, anointed one. And so Jesus comes as the anointed one. And that's who John says we need to know he is, the one who ushers in God's rule and reign and his saving work in our lives that we desperately need. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that, here it is, by believing, you may have life in his name. Please don't, don't despise the simplicity of belief. I'm convinced so many people find the Christian gospel a little weird because it's so simple. You believe, you trust, you, you lean all your weight on Jesus. You don't do anything to contribute to what he's done for you, and you find life in him. There's a simplicity in that. That's why a four-year-old 
can go from darkness to light and trust Jesus in saving faith. It's, it's simple in a beautiful way, and it couldn't be more profound. And when we believe in Jesus, we have life in his name. That's not just the name Jesus. That's according to his character, who he is and what he's done. There's no fine print with God, and there's no fine print here. We want you to know that what we're after this week is deeper belief if you already have it and saving belief if you don't. That's what we're after in our time together. And so uh, we're talking about truth. We're talking about living in a world where there's actually something outside of ourselves that's true, whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we are inclined to think that's how things should be or are. And it's amazing how much freedom people feel to think they play God and they get to determine truth. But we don't. We've got to submit to God's word and God's ways if we're going to understand and know truth. And so our mission is to bring us to deeper belief in God. So I thought it'd be helpful to define truth. So what is truth? I don't want to go through a whole week without a clear definition of what truth is. So truth, then, is what aligns with God, God's character and God's ways. As we said this morning, he's the creator. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who designed everything for the purposes that he designed everything for, which is ultimately his glory and the blessing and joy and good of those who align themselves with him and his way. So truth, then, is what aligns with God's character. It's reality. It's the way things really are. And again, you may rage against the way things really are, but the way things really are is what reality is. We don't get to create reality. And throughout the history of the world, people have realized that wisdom means that you learn to align yourself, to conform yourself, to work within the way things are. That's what wisdom is. And foolishness is going down the path of butting up against the realities of life. That if you pay attention and get away from self-deception and manipulation that we're constantly being sucked into by a culture that wants to persuade us to buy what they are selling, whether those are ideas or products, instead of aligned to what's true and right. And so we want to be people who understand reality and then live our lives according to it. You know, it's interesting. Even in the ancient world, people didn't like this. It's, it's not quite like it is now, but people said, no, I wonder if there's a way around reality. I wonder if there's a way around and that maybe we can manipulate reality. You know what it was called? It was called magic. You know, maybe we can create some incantation or some potions or, or, or make some sort of uh, impressive magical display, and maybe we can do this. And so there was always an appeal to magic, to tapping into something bigger than the way things seem to have to be. Well, magic in our days, in many ways, has been replaced by technology. Technology gives you the impression that you can manipulate and create reality. It gives you the impression that, for instance, you can be in more than one place at a time, right? That you just use technology and you're transported via Zoom or FaceTime. 
And you're meeting, you're having a meeting, but are you? You can never be in more than one place at a time. And so we've got to realize that there's a reality we conform to, and let's not be deceived by human advancements, whether they be industrial or technological or scientific or medical, to think that we're more in control than we really are. Oh, it's amazing, by God's grace and empowering, what human beings are capable of doing. But what can happen with technological advances, what can happen with all these products that we make is we actually start to think we've got it all figured out. That's why even though I grieve over something and pray against something like a pandemic, when those things happen, we need to lean into them. You know, my, you know, everybody was saying, you know, how should we respond to this pandemic governmentally, politically, legally, all this stuff. And I was just thinking, what does God want us to learn from this pandemic? And I'm not sure, probably mostly what he wanted us to learn, but I'm absolutely sure there's one thing he wanted us to learn. Humility. Humility that we realize we're not as in control as we tend to think we are. That this thing we can't even see is is putting us on our backs and sometimes on our deathbeds. We're not as strong as we think we are. We're not as in control as we think we are, but we tend to think we are. This is in some ways the core human problem. Are you willing to learn a couple of of big words? You are? Okay, and think a little deeply with me now. I want you to just learn two words, the word autonomy and the word ontology, okay? Autonomy, autonomy means that we're self-governing, that we have moral independence, um, self-law, literally, self-law, auto, right, self-law, that, that I am an independent knower, I am, I am autonomous, I'm an autonomous knower, an autonomous being, and you can, you can trace this amazingly for 300 years in the way people thought to the point where we're at, where we are now in this idea of human autonomy, the, the independent reason knower who can know anything if you just give him enough time. And you hear this kind of thing all the time. All the truth you need is within you, right? Just look within yourself. You know, Disney's version is follow your heart. Right? It's like the message of every Disney movie. Follow your heart. Friends, if I followed my heart every time it led me somewhere, I'd be in prison (laughs) for a really long time. That's funny, yes, but it's true. Just on the drive up to Hume last week, it would have been true. So follow your heart can be a deadly bit of advice. Now, there's a capacity for the human heart to grow, but only when it's conformed to what's true and what's real. So autonomy thinks, I I'm the master of my destiny. In some ways, this is just fed by American culture mentality constantly. You know, I'm an individual. Individualism is probably, if you had to summarize the American mentality with one word, that's what it is, individualism. That I am an autonomous knower. I know who I am. But an ontology is this really important word. It's it's a word that people use when they study philosophy. And and it's a a discipline within something called metaphysics. But it's just just saying, look, ontology is the study 
of how things are. They're how things are. The actual nature of things. And when you study the way things are, you're assuming things are a certain way. And you don't get to determine that because you're not the creator. And here's the phrase I want you to learn and say to each other. Ontology always trumps autonomy. Everybody say that. Ontology always trumps autonomy. Good. Yeah, ontology trumps uh, autonomy. In other words, you may think, you may wish, you may desire that, that you're in charge of reality, but you're not. You never are. You know, you may wish you were 6'4", even though you're 5'4". And you may want to decide, nope, from now on I'm 6'4", but you're, uh, you're always going to be 5'4". That's just how it is. You may say that men can have babies, but they can't. Right? If, if, right? Yeah. That's just an example. Right? You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? You may, you may say... You may say that sugar water cures cancer because it's way easier than chemotherapy, but that's not true. That's not how things are. And so we've got to step back and realize that you may think, you may wish, you may desire, you may be really offended when people deny the way you think things are the way they are, but you can be offended all you want. You can call people arrogant or bigoted or intolerant all you want, but ontology always trumps autonomy, always. You can't win a battle against reality. No matter how fancy you get with the words you use to create your own reality, it'll never be reality. And so we're talking about the difference between objectivity and subjectivity, and we have let subjectivity rule the day. When you go home and your mother says, so honey, what'd you learn at camp this week? Say, mom, I learned that ontology trumps autonomy. Mom, you don't know what that means, mom? And then inform them that that's the reality. And in some ways, this is where we need to be. And all we need to do to get this right is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we could just get that passage down, that one first verse of the Bible, that sets a trajectory of getting everything right and realizing that we're not God. It's absurd that anyone needs to tell us that but I and you and humans need to be told, you're not God. There are two fundamental facts of human enlightenment. One, there is a God. And two, you're not him. And you need to realize that. And the sooner you do, the sooner you'll do, you'll take a, an, an individual hit to your therapeutic, shallow, superficial self-esteem, and you'll start to find life because God is the only source of life, and he gives life on his terms, not ours. I, and please don't hear this like a hammer. Hear it as a father who doesn't want his child to find solutions that aren't going to satisfy, aren't going to give answers to the deepest questions of life. 
We, we are coming apart at the seams in so many ways as individuals and families and as a society. And we just keep swimming away from the lifeboat who is God and his ways which are in his word. And that's where we want to think tonight. We want to think about God and his ways. He is, as we said this morning, the perfect, holy, truthful, faithful, all-knowing, wise, unchanging creator. And that's the God we want to know. And yet I hear people, I hear Christians come to me and say, I could never worship a God who's like this or who's like this or who wouldn't allow this or that. We come with our description of what God better be like if he's going to get our worship. We come with a job description of how he better run the world if I'm going to like him. I mean, it's just astounding how patient God is with humanity. It really is. It's just astounding. But he is so incredibly patient. He's perfect and holy. And if this is all true of him, if there's nothing lacking in him, and he's given us his word, he's given us his truth, oh, we need to find his word precious. Like, like water to a, a desperately thirsty woman or food to a desperately hungry man. This is life. This is the source of life because it leads to the ultimate source of life, God himself. And remember last night we said that God the Father is the God of truth. Look, twice in this one verse he calls himself the God of truth. We, we said that Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. He embodies truth. And we saw that the Spirit says that he is the Spirit of truth. Jesus says he's the comforter, the one who comes alongside and provides for us. And he'll send him from the Father. See this beautiful Father, Son, Spirit, Trinitarian economy, this way of doing things. He's the Spirit of truth. And what does that mean? It means he goes from the Father and testifies about Jesus, which makes sense because if Jesus is the truth and the Spirit's the Spirit of truth, then of course he'll tell us about Jesus, testify about Jesus. And what else we find out about the spirit of truth in the Bible is he's the one who inspired the human authors to give us exactly what we have in his word. And he's at work right now in our minds and hearts, illumining our minds, enlightening them, to understand his word and then taking that word and transforming it. You see, the Spirit's the one who takes what's objectively true and makes it subjectively transformative. See, this isn't just some cold, hard reality outside of us that we just have to submit to. No, this is reality that comes to us through the comforter, the kind Father and the Son who loves us and sends the Spirit, and then we have the Word of God to learn all these things. And it's precious to us. It's, it's the Word of God for us. And so we recognize God's character. And so I want to go again to John 1. Let's, let's go back there in your Bibles. Would you please go to John 1, and we'll pick up where we left off this morning. So this morning, in, in verses 1 through 18 of John 1, 
I don't know if you notice, but there are some key words that are vital to understanding not just the, what's called the prologue of John, verses 1 through 18, but look at these words. Look in verse 4, the word life. Again in verse 4, the word light. In verse 7, the word witness. These are seven thematic key words, not just through this part of John, but the entire gospel. These words keep coming up, and as we go through it, pay attention to these words, life and light and witness in verse 7. John is a witness to the truth. John, is a, John the Baptist is a witness to the truth. He points away from himself to Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's a witness. Verse 9 has two of them. True. The true word of God. The true light. Not the fake one. Not the, the, the poser one, but the real one. The true, the genuine article. The true light. That's who he is. And then verse 14 has two of them as well. Glory. We've seen his glory as of the only son. Glory, another major thematic word of John. And then finally, don't get it confused, so it's the true light, but this is the word truth, the noun, right? Not the adjective, the noun. This is what we're talking about when we say what reality is, what conforms to God's character and God's ways. And then we pick it up in verse 19. Look, look what it says. And this is the testimony, witness, right? The, the, the pointing away from self to John to Jesus, the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, this is John the Baptist, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? That's shorthand for the Messiah, for the Christ, the one who brings God's kingdom. And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight, straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And so what's going on here is they're saying, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one who's going to bring salvation and freedom and life? Are you the one who's going to bring God's kingdom once and for all? And John the Baptist says, no, I'm just getting you ready for him. And I'm on a completely different level. I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. That's who he is, and that's who I am. And, and he, he continues this. this. This goes through this whole beautiful section where he calls his disciples then, and they follow him based on the belief that he really is the Messiah. He really is the one they've been waiting for, the one who's going to bring life and light and what they desperately need and what we desperately need. And this story is really old. You know, our society loves what's trendy, what's trending, what's cool, what's cutting edge, what's innovative. And over and over again, Jesus and the apostles keep saying, we are not preaching anything new. That doesn't sell well, then or now. But 
they would say, we're preaching something really, really old that's finally come to fulfillment. And that's what we have in Jesus. For thousands of years, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the, God, the people of God were saying, is this the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and get us out of this dilemma we've gotten ourselves into? Is this him? And then we have the word of God fulfilled in Jesus. And then the New Testament is this story of Jesus and there's reflection on the person and work of Christ. So we have this precious word of God. And we need to realize that it's got to be our authority. Why? Because it's inspired and fulfills the promises. Look, Deuteronomy, Moses was told, there's a prophet coming like you, Moses, who's going to fulfill all the prophetic offices before you. All of them is going to be fulfilled in this one man, the Messiah. And that's why when Peter starts preaching, what does he say? Moses said, he quotes Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your, from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it's not just Peter who says that. It's the father who says it of Jesus at his baptism, if you know the story. The Spirit descends on Jesus and anoints him for his public ministry. And you know what the Father says? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then in his transfiguration, the same thing happens. He, he meets with Moses and Elijah, this representative of the law and the prophets that he's fulfilling. And the Father says, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And that's what we're doing here tonight. We're listening to him because he saw the Bible as the word of God. Jesus did. There are people who like to say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Hard to love Jesus when you don't love his bride. And there are even people who say, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm not much of a Bible person. You can't do that. We only know Jesus from the scriptures. We, we know what he taught, and he's constantly quoting scripture from the beginning to the end of his life and his ministry. He taught the scriptures over and over again for us. And so there are just some things. I'm just going to do a quick flyover. Don't try to just absorb all this, but I just want you to have a sense of the, the character of scripture. We talked about the character of God, but I want you to realize that the character of scripture mirrors the character of its author, right? The inspiration of scripture means all scripture is from God, inspired human authors by the Spirit is giving us the Bible that we have. And as Paul says to the Thessalonians, it's not the words of men. It's actually the word of God. And that has the power to change us and transform us. So it's inspired by God. So it, it reflects his character. The perfect, truthful, all-knowing, wise, eternal, faithful, unchanging character of God is mirrored in his word. And so it has authority in our lives. It's our supreme authority in everything. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of God will stand forever. It's inerrant. It's without error in everything. Of course it is. God doesn't err, and so his word doesn't err. He always tells the truth. And another really important characteristic of Scripture is its clarity. The Bible's basically clear. Oh, there are some very hard things to understand in the Bible, but it's mostly written by really common folks for very common folks. It's actually something kids can understand fairly well. I was amazed. We adopted all four of our kids. They didn't know any English when, when they came to the United States. 
But in about a year, my kids with regular attending to the Bible actually started to learn the Bible, I think, better than a lot of Christian adults I know. It was just amazing to me how they could really absorb it. The clarity of Scripture is something we need to realize, that it's basically clear. It takes work, and it takes time, and it needs to become a friend, but it's basically clear to us. And it's sufficient in what it says and what it doesn't say. It provides everything we need for life and godliness and everything God created us to be. The Scriptures are sufficient for all we need. And the scriptures are delightful. I don't want you to miss this. It's what I said before. It's like food to a hungry man. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the law are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold and than much pure gold and are sweeter than honey and honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. I know you may be sitting there saying, wow, when I read the Bible, that is not how it makes me feel. And I understand that. And, and I don't even think the psalmist always necessarily felt this way. But over time, as you become men and women of the word, it becomes a friend, and the people in it become friends that you're going to see in heaven someday, and you become more familiar with it. It takes work. God didn't drop just principles from heaven. He revealed truth with real people in real times and real places, which means it takes some work to go back in time and understand it then and then apply it to our lives now. And so it takes work, and I don't think many of us believe what I'm saying enough to actually put in the work. Why do I say that? Well, listen to this. These are just general. Do you know the majority of Americans, when they're asked, do you think the Bible's the word of God, say yeah. They do. They say yes. Um, but but listen, listen to these statistics. There was a survey done, and they were... Americans were asked to name three of the disciples, just three. Um, less than half could just name, oh, no, two could name two of the disciples. Uh, they were asked, is this a Bible verse? God helps those who helps themselves. 82% said it is. It's not in the Bible. Now, uh, you just need to know, people who identify as born-again Christians did better in this survey by 1%. Uh, the majority of people asked in the survey said that they believe the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family, which is a certain important priority, but nothing about the glory of God there at all. 12% of Americans believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Over 50% of graduating high school seniors, over 50% of graduating high school seniors thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And twice as many Americans could name the seven ingredients of a Big Mac in each member of the Brady Bunch than could name half of the Ten Commandments. So you say, well, that's a general culture. That's not... Christians. Well, listen to these results of Christian leaders done at the Christian Booksellers Association. 
Can you name the Ten Commandments? What, what percentage do you think pastors, Christian leaders, Christian publishers, Christian authors, what percentage of them do you think could name all Ten Commandments? 25, 25. 25. I'll just give you the answer. Okay, let's rate. Okay, here's the answer. You ready? 5%. Most, most couldn't name half. All right, reel it in. Here we go. Um, agree or disagree, they were asked. Here it is. This is key for our topic this week. Agree or disagree. The issue God cares about is the direction of the heart, not the content of your beliefs. That is a complete false dichotomy, yet almost half of the, the, the Christian, no, 75% agreed with that. As if you could have a direction of your heart without a belief driving it. See, these are, these are absurd false dichotomies, friends. But, but this is how people think. Agree or disagree. These are evangelical Christians. We're, agree or disagree. We're saved by grace after all that we can do, which completely defies the definition of grace, yet 42% agreed with it. Agree or disagree. The test of truth is whether or not it works on a practical level. Americanism, pragmatism, the only truly American-born philosophy, yet a third of the leaders believe that is true. And this one, agree or disagree. Philosophy is useless and theology is worse, which is actually a, a line from a band called The Dire Straits. They had a song, and yet a third of these leaders believe that. So, so here's what's going on. Even people who will say they believe the Bible is the word of God and it leads us to life, don't read it. People think Christians are a bunch of Bible thumpers. We're not even Bible readers, most of us. You know, please don't spend the rest of the night. Honor your mother and father. Keep the Sabbath. We'll do that later. But odds are, the vast majority of us can't get through half of them. And so it's really important for us to back up and say, wow, do I really believe that this is the word of God and it will lead me to life? And if not, what is my authority? What is my source of knowing truth? But what we need to realize is that Jesus is a risen Savior. He is alive. He's not like every other religious leader who's in the grave. He is alive and well, and we know him through the scriptures. We know Christ according to the Bible, and we know the Bible according to Christ. We understand the scriptures when we make it about finding Jesus throughout the Bible, not in every, every little metaphorical detail, but in finding who he is throughout the Bible because it's all about him. So we understand Christ according to the Bible, and we understand the Bible according to Christ. In other words, he's the interpretive grid through which we see the Bible. And the Bible is what the Holy Spirit uses to transform us every day of our lives. So we devote ourselves to knowledge. We devote ourselves to knowing truth. But there's this idea that truth actually is just this cold, dead thing that isn't relational and isn't organic and isn't a heart thing. It's all a head thing. And we even make that dichotomy. And it's just wrong for us to think this way. Tell me your name. Bailey. Bailey. Hi, Bailey. You dating anyone, Bailey? I just got engaged. You just got engaged. Woo! Bailey, let, let me ask you something. What's his name? Jacob. So say Jacob. Say, let me, let's see if this engagement's going to last after this date that Jacob takes you on. All right? And, and you're not married until you're at the end of that. So Bailey, work with me here. Bailey, say Jacob takes you out on a date. And he says, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to spending our lives together. And... And you say, you know what? 
I'm really going to open up. We're going to get married. I'm going to be really vulnerable. I'm going to tell them my deepest dreams and fears and desires. And you go to a new level of openness and vulnerability with, with Jacob. And he cuts you off mid-sentence, about four minutes in. And he says, you know what, Bailey? It seems to me you have a different definition of the best kind of relationship. You see, I think relationships are best not by focusing on knowledge and information and facts, but it's more organic than that. It should flow from the heart and, and just happen naturally. And quite frankly, you're kind of overwhelming me with all these Bailey facts and all this Bailey information. See, that's not how relationships are best and most intimate, Bailey. So, so could we just sort of shift the way we go about our relationship? How's that going to land, Bailey? I can tell by your face, right? She goes like this. this. This engagement's on the rocks if this date takes place, right? Because if that's how we views love, right? What, why, why is this? Why? Yeah, if he's not willing to listen about her and what they're going to be intimate about, then he's, he's missing the definition of love, right? He's got a serious defect in his understanding of love if it's not connected to knowledge. Here's the thing, because there's a basic con commitment between knowledge and love. The more you love someone, the more you want to know them. And the more you know them, the greater your capacity to love them. And there's a fundamental connection between belief and behavior, how you think ends up determining how you live. And so we've got to see the connection between belief and behavior and love and knowledge. We disconnect those. And we say things like, well, your concept of love doesn't matter, just that you love, right? That's what the guy was saying last night. Your, your idea of God isn't important, as important as your, your, your loving God. Your idea of who people are isn't as important as loving people. Well, why should I love people? See, if my worldview just says human beings are the result of some blob of protoplasm that called out of the ocean a billion and a half years ago and somehow became a human, and it's about survival of the fittest and climbing the food chain and not watering down the gene pool, well, I'm not going to love my enemy and turn the other cheek. I'm going to stomp on you on the, top of the, the way to the top of the food chain. See, that, that's a view of people that will not lead me to love, and honest philosophers like Nietzsche had the guts to say that. But if... You, if everybody you meet is a unique creation of God made in his image, worthy of profound love and laying down your life for their good, well, that's a completely different definition of a human and therefore a completely definition of how you relate to them. See how different it is depending on what you think about these things. We have all these words we use and we don't fill them with clear understanding and knowledge coming from the word of our creator. We've got to be people who think who think deeply about things and devote ourselves to the study of the scriptures and become men and women who know what we believe and know what we're talking about. Because Jesus really is the one to give us life. He says in John 5, that's coming up, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He's saying this to the religious leaders of his day. It's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures are about Jesus. The word of God is about the capital W, word of God made flesh. That's who he is for us. And that's why Peter preached the same message. 
that all the prophets bear witness to him and the forgiveness of sins that he offers. That's who he is. That's what he accomplishes on our behalf. And so it's all about finding who he is, finding freedom and life and joy. I mentioned this morning my, my friend Rick Floyd is sitting back. Rick, wave, wave your hand. There he is. Hey, Rick. That's Rick. Rick. Rick, how old were you when you went to Peru? 28 when he went to Peru. He and his wife moved to a very high elevation mountain in Peru that had a people group that not only didn't have the Bible in their language, they didn't have a written language. So Rick, who's a genius, went to this people group with his wife, Melanie, and got these people who had never seen a white person before to trust them first, and then one lady let them live in their potato bin in her backyard in Peru, and he spent most of his adult, he has spent most of his adult life, first of all, giving them an alphabet, and then a written language, and then literacy, and then books to help them gain literacy. And how many years ago did you finally finish off the New Testament? 2006, he completed the New Testament after 26 years. After 26 years. 26 years, he and Melanie went and gave the Bible, the Word of God, to a people in Huanca, Quechua. My wife and I got to go to Peru to be there for the dedication the day that these Bibles were unpacked and handed to these people who've never read the Bible in their own language before. It was one of the most important experiences of my entire life. They had a parade that went for six miles through the main city with little kids dressed like Bibles walking down the street. It was unbelievable. Now, why would a young man and a young woman who are newly married go and spend their lives doing that? And he's polishing off the Old Testament now with the help of translators from that people group who have now taken over the work, and he advises them. Now, why would he do that? Why would you do that, Rick? He's here. Isn't that cool? An illustration with the man sitting. Why would you do that? Because Jesus changed my life. And how did he know about Jesus? From the scriptures. That's why, right? That's it. And, and so, so that's, you know, I say to him all the time, Rick, just stop trying to accomplish anything. You have no right to accomplish anything else the rest of your life. You've accomplished more than you deserve, right? It's just unbelievable. But guys, it's worth, it, it's worth investing your life to get the word of God in the hands of people, and we have it. You got 30 translations on your phone. Let's be men and women of the word. And if you've never really devoted yourself to the study of scriptures, I encourage you to dive in and make it a regular part of your life every day, and you will start to see it giving you life and changing your life and leading you to Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith and the one who gives us life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the grace of your word. Thank you for the grace of the spirit who inspired it and is working in each of our hearts in this very moment. Lord, I'm thankful for people like Rick and Melanie who, who, who see the scriptures for what they are and invested their lives into giving it to people who didn't have it. Lord, I'm grateful that we are able to sit here tonight with Bibles open stacks in the back for people who need one. And it's just all around. But Lord, we can neglect it. We can think, well, it's just dry and dusty and boring. But Lord, help us to see 
that it is the greatest gift to have your word because it leads us to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.